he would tweet uh, folksy, funny things like, okay, the, in the VP debate, you got a fly that lands on Mike Pence's head. And then, you know, there's a picture of Biden holding a fly sweater and it says, pitch in five bucks to help this campaign fly. So it's like, you know, the dad jokes like that, like really resonate with, you know, the core of who he is. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Thomas Kramer, who's the co-founder and CEO at Measure Studio. Measure Studio provides tech centralizing and analyzing your social media data across various platforms so you can tell what is working and what is not. The Biden presidential campaign, for example, used their tech in 2020. Thomas is very knowledgeable about the world of social media with a lot of employment in that area before he started his own firms. So we had a very good conversation about politics and social media, what kind of content works well, his entrepreneurial journey, and where he wants to take Measure Studio. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Thomas Kramer of Measure Studio. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Thomas, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So my name is Thomas Kramer. I'm the co-founder and, and CEO over at Measure Studio. I also am co-founder and COO over at Paladin Software. So Measure Studio is an application for centralizing your social media data across various platforms and then analyzing it and telling you what content is working for you and what content is not working for you and demystifying all the gross math parts. So it's it's really great if you are a content producer and you're trying to understand your content better by the numbers. Um, so you can focus on, you know, doing what you do best and, and make great content. I kind of got into that space via a career that started in ad buying. So I was I was buying kind of YouTube pre-roll ads on behalf of a variety of Fortune 500 companies running ad ops at, a, at an agency in LA. And from there, I hopped over to the organic side of things. I got a little fatigued with kind of just the grind of paid media. Um, and I started working at a company called Maker Studios that was then acquired by Disney. And my job there was to head up YouTube optimization and work with some of the, the biggest creators on YouTube, like PewDiePie, Markiplier, et cetera, and help them grow their their presence uh, on YouTube and, and work with other teams to help them grow on other social media platforms. Um, and then, you know, post Disney, it was doing kind of the same thing for a variety of Disney brands like Marvel and Star Wars and Disney parks and things like that. From that, I got an opportunity to um, lead a technology team serving creator networks and um, influencer marketing in particular, which is how Paladin was born. 
that got me really interested in, in the data side of things with social media, understanding the technology landscape, what's available for creators and for media companies and how difficult it was to really just understand a basic thing, like how are you doing more broadly on social media? And I became really interested in answering that question with my team. Um, and that's really how Measure Studio was born, which really super serves that data piece of things. And, you know, it's it's been adopted by, you know, the, the Biden presidential campaign this last cycle, um, some major media companies like Group 9 and BBC um, and individual creators. So it's it's cool to make something that's accessible to a lot of different types of folks. But that's me. And it sounds like a pretty interesting space to be in. It's it's kind of weird for an old guy like me to hear you talk about it because all of the pieces of expertise you have are about things that didn't exist that very long ago, at least from my perspective. This whole world requires and is developing so many specialized skills and analytics and, and software tools and everything up on top of these platforms that are only recent creations themselves. It's, it's crazy. I assume for you, it's just like, it's native, but it's, it's, it's weird for me. I was born in the mid eighties. You know, I have the benefit of remembering a time pre-internet <laughs> that was, you know, it was television, newspapers and radio the internet really matured as a distribution platform for content probably around the time I was getting out of college, which I guess was beneficial to me because it, I graduated from, from school at the bottom of the recession. I could not find a job related to business or entrepreneurship, which is what I studied. And I ended up working at a call center, but it was late at night and I needed something to really kind of scratch my productivity itch. It was, it was kind of a tough job for me in the sense that you know, it, it just felt like a, a grindy type of job, which I, I guess I kind of felt with media buying. But um, that gave me an opportunity to start like contracting with some different blogs and writing content and getting to know YouTube and understanding, you know, what are the distribution channels in this this new world that we've created for ourselves, you know, circa 2010. I feel like I had a unique opportunity to get involved with that stuff. And then I got, you know, to know media buying and contracting out doing that because it was something that I could learn on my own through a Google certification. Everything else just kind of followed. Like, you know, I, paid media gives you a really strong sense of, you know, what does performance need to be on the internet? You know, what are metrics for success for performance? Like, you know, view through rates and you know, CPMs and things like that. And a lot of that naturally carries over the organic side of the internet too. It's, you know, it's about how do you keep an eyeball's attention um, over time. So I felt like my circumstances were kind of unique in that my path really naturally folded from one thing to the next. But I, I can see like kind of zooming out in hindsight, how like convenient and probably rare that path is, <laughs> given that it had to start at a certain point in time. Well, I, I want to ask you one question sort of generically about content on the internet. You've seen how people work so hard to make their content seen, both by paying for it and by creating things that they anticipate people will follow or that they learn people will, will follow. What works? What is content that will find an audience? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's evolved a lot in the last decade. 10 years ago, Content That Works was about content that had the hooks to be easily found on a search engine. So, you know, it's it was about being convenient to find. 
And that's what would make a piece of content successful, regardless if it was really good or not. It's just like, can I be number one on Google or can I get in a news aggregator? You know, social media news feeds, in particular, algorithmic news feeds really changed that because then it became what is content that can capture attention and drive session time. So it's not even about necessarily that initial piece of content that somebody sees being particularly captivating or interesting on its own. It's about, can this single piece of content start a rabbit hole where people are spending, you know, a large amount of time staring at a device and generating, you know, more ad impressions for a platform like Instagram or like YouTube? You know, there's things that are key indicators for like starting those rabbit holes. Does it have a high click-through rate or, you know, if it's something that's auto-played like a video on, on a TikTok or a Instagram, what was the amount of stoppage on that feed? You know, did I, did I pause my scrolling behavior? Did I stop and I look at this thing? And that's, you know, algorithmically a signal that, you know, okay, there's types of content like this out there. A lot of it we know in the ecosystem is, is more captivating even than a single piece of content that got this person's attention, let's then feed that to them right away. So, you know, if I saw like an, an okay sports clip that, that got my attention initially, we know that in the United States, this is the top sport clip right now. Let's say it's football or something like that. So we're going to feed that to the user next and start, you know, this daisy chain of consumption. Um, so that's really what makes a piece of content impactful. So, you know, the, to succeed, you really kind of have to make a better piece of content than you did 10 years ago when it was just dependent on, hey, I got the right keywords on this thing. You have to make a piece of content that's good enough to capture someone's attention and also keep it and keep them engaged moving forward. So on the one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, the type of content you see really proliferating right now is extremely short. And I think that has societal impact. It has like information retention impact. You know, you look at a platform like TikTok or, you know, things like Instagram stories or Snapchat stories, and you you have a, a piece of content that's like one to 10 seconds long. And there's only so much you can communicate in that. And the types of things that drive snappy attention that are really short tend to be, you know, controversial, which, you know, we saw a lot of in the last election cycle, or very hard left or hard right driven things that are aggressive and provoke some sort of reaction. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be political, it could be something like, uh, you know, an accident or, you know, a variety of things that are not necessarily healthy. Um, and then, you know, there's like quick-witted humor stuff. Like you see like really a lot of that type of thing. I think the challenge for content creators when they want to, you know, proliferate other types of content right now is they have to understand that structure and work within it to produce other types of content that, that fit within those criteria. Over time, when you've worked with brands and you've worked with individual creators or, you know, help buy for them, things like that. Do they understand what it takes? Does that have to be taught to them? Is that understanding developing in tandem with the algorithms and the changes in the internet? Does that gap have to keep being closed between creator and the environment? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a distribution, right? There's media companies that are extremely sophisticated with a like the, the in-house talent that they bring in who are aware of how these things work, and then B, investing in their own data and technology. You saw that with like BuzzFeed is a great example of that. Like maybe BuzzFeed five years ago has this huge, sophisticated technological data arm. And they're doing basically the types of things that Measure Studio does, but, you know, it's private, right? And like, you know, part of why I'm interested in that as a product is it kind of democratizes access to these types of insights and making it easy to determine what's working. You have these organizations that were really sophisticated and that's continued to grow. You have companies, you know, like like Vice, like Group 9 Media and others that are that are really on the ball here and developing multiple brands that take advantage of the way distribution works now organically. You know, you have types of companies like big uh, news organizations that just by the sheer volume of stuff that they produce and syndicate, like they get hits and winners that align with this stuff. But the news cycle has shortened to a level that I'm not certain they approach it in a, a really sophisticated way. It's just like more of a numbers game. Like there's certain things like you see headliney clickbait and the, the way that they frame stories now often aligns with, you know, these fundamentals, but not always. Brands, it's all over the place. Like when when Disney acquired Maker Studios when I was working there, they were extremely sophisticated on platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook and, and Instagram, but were failing miserably on YouTube. Um, you know, you saw a brand like Star Wars have 20 million or 200 million or some some wild number of Facebook page followers and then like 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. So there's just like really big knowledge gaps institutionally and organizationally. These things tend to be siloed in ways that are sort of interesting with big brands, you also tend to see like geographic localization and like different levels of sophistication, depending on the market that team serves. So, you know, something like Star Wars, like the main Star Wars brand would do very well, but then you'd see like Star Wars Indonesia. And that's like a small team that doesn't have the same level of resources or something, or, you know, it's inherently a a smaller audience because it's geolocked and um, you'll see less sophistication there. And then from there, you got agencies and SMBs and smaller brands. And that space has been really interesting. Like when you look at emerging e-commerce brands right now, they tend to be extremely digitally sophisticated. Like there's a lot of great information on like what, you know, ad buying needs to look like and what content in that needs to look like to drive things like, oh, you know, I I did a pop-up shop. I started my Shopify store. I have two products or I'm doing drop shipping or something like that. And those people tend to be really savvy. And then conversely, you see like brick and mortar small businesses. I also, I own a hair salon with my wife and we see like competition there is very unsophisticated with digital. It's really all over the place. But I think, you know, as, as we move forward in time and, and more digital natives become business owners and, and this just kind of general knowledge proliferates, it'll, it'll be less of a problem. If you were to focus that question on the political world and particularly in the campaign world, I guess, you were a part of it, I guess, through Biden and I don't know about others. Does quality information rise to the top or does the worst 
rise or can you make statements like that? Who's doing a good job of getting their point of view out there and why and who isn't? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. You know, I can tell you based on what I observed through the Biden campaign by the numbers, the things that I felt resonated were inherently quite authentic to the brand of Joe Biden. And what I mean by that is people, I think, are generally aware of who Joe Biden is. Like, you know, they had, you know, eight years of experience of him as VP and kind of his general awareness of his more folksy nature or gaffes, et cetera. I think that made him more human as a candidate in a lot of ways. And if you look at what the digital team did with their messaging, it was very much in line with keeping that established brand and like the underlying comfort that that offered. Um, and I think audiences right now are extremely savvy to authenticity, which is a word that I kind of hate. But, you know, they're, they're accustomed now to following personalities and understanding who those personalities are as, as humans so that, the, you know, they have unique traits, they have flawed character. And I think that's what made him pretty approachable. He would tweet uh, folksy, funny things like, okay, the, in the VP debate, you got a fly that lands on Mike Pence's head. And then, you know, there's a picture of Biden holding a fly sweater and it says, pitch in five bucks to help this campaign fly. So it's like, you know, the dad jokes like that, like really resonate with, you know, the core of who he is. And there were other things that were, you know, more genuine. I think very easy to understand for a lot of people who are hungry for an actual leadership position. Like, you know, this has been a chaotic four years. Like, you know, you can sit on whatever side of the spectrum you want with it, but it was undeniably chaotic. And the election is being contested, et cetera. And it's just, you know, don't worry, folks, we're going to win this. And it's like, that is a extremely succinct piece of content that takes no production whatsoever, that is authentic to the voice and speaks to, you know, a huge number of people who are just hungry for someone to be in charge or for some light at the end of the tunnel for the, the chaos engine. Conversely, when you look at Donald Trump, it, he's extremely savvy with, you know, his ability to take control of a news cycle by the sheer amount of noise that he generated. Um, so it's, it's almost like those news organizations, right? You know, he's publishing with such a frequency that it almost becomes the story that, you know, the shifts in dynamic and mood and, and momentum are inherently of interest to everyone. Um, the stuff is often inflammatory, which causes a huge amount of engagement. You know, people weighing in, I, I hate you, you're wrong, I love you, my president, you know, bots from, you know, various, uh, you know, foreign nationals commenting and such. It's that type of behavior, that scrum is extremely valuable also. The algorithms tend to reward that type of engagement really heavily. But I also think he was really, and well, if he wasn't banned, he'd still have like a unique kind of power to do that. That's not really easily replicated in, in politics in general. I don't think like Mitch McConnell or you know, maybe a Ted Cruz or someone like that tends to, you know, dunk on people, you know, like you've, you've, your AOCs and, and such too. 
but it's I think it's hard to capture in general. Like say you're a down ballot politician and you're trying to use that as a strategy. Like I don't know if it's going to work for you unless you have a large audience to begin with. You know, there's really two sides of that coin. You know, you can you can be a human, you can be approachable, and you can try and rock the boat and get a lot of engagement. Both, I think, were really successful tactics. If the Biden campaign sounds like they had a basic strategy, which was don't go far from from the basic characteristics of this candidate that are well understood and use that. Why did they need to measure? Why did they need to use you to find out what was working and what wasn't working? How would that help them? Sure. Especially now, like candidacies are so multi-issue. We're not in World War II. We're not in the Great Depression where it's, you know, it's like relatively singular in terms of like what the focus areas are. Kind of in 2020, just everything's kind of on fire, you know, (laughs) from from gun violence to environment to economy to coronavirus to everything. One of the big challenges, especially on, on the right, was figuring out what message was resonating. If you look at the the Trump campaign strategy, he was all over the place, just talking about any number of issues, waxing and waning on kind of his stance on certain issues, to a certain extent, like explaining these issues nonsensically in, in debates. He was surprisingly undisciplined. Exactly. And I think that was confusing for a lot of people. I don't think he had a message that was central or like, you know, a few central points that were really resonating. The Biden campaign was really excellent at staying on message. Like, you know, they had a plan for like the issues that they wanted to focus on and how they were going to talk about them. Why they need to measure that is really to understand, like, how do I fine tune that plan? Like, are there things about that plan that are not working? Like, you know, if I'm talking about climate change in this way, does that in general perform worse than when I talk about climate change in that way? In an election where it's, you know, it's going to be 49-51 at the end of the day with with votes, electorally speaking, it's, it's certainly very close. You know, that 10% delta on messaging and its impact of messaging is critical. Being able to understand that and then iterate on it extremely quickly. And that's that's one of the things that our product does really well is, you know, we give you hourly data and hourly benchmarking. So like, you know, I know by hour two, if this piece of content is doing better or worse than a typical piece of content, that gives you gives you opportunity to A, do something to affect that piece of content. So like if it's doing bad, change out a video thumbnail, change a title, edit a caption, whatever, try and see if you can get some more juice out of it. Um, and if it's doing well, maybe I want to pour gas on it and use some paid media and get it some extra attention. And then learning quickly. You know, how do I want to change the types of content that I make moving forward based on what performed well or performed poorly? Um, so I, I think it was a solid addition. I would say it's, you know, it's one piece of a big toolbox, right? Like, you know, we focus on organic social media content. So, you know, this is something, you know, they threw out on a tweet. It's also important to, you know, focus on your digital ad buys. It's important to knock on doors. It's important to, you know, text and raise money and sell merchandise and all the other things. But I think it was impactful in a, in a small way. If you're providing like hourly updates about content that you would have to be a fairly substantial operation to need what you do or profit from what you do. Is that right? 
what are the range of clients that ought to be considering uh, Measure Studio? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, a big part of what we set out to do was to democratize access to this type of like high-powered data stuff. And there's there's a few big barriers to it. Like one is, if you want to provide this data, you have to get permission to get it from you know from Facebook, from Twitter, from YouTube, etc. Um, and it can be challenging to get that access. So, you know, when people want to develop their own solution, it's hard for them to overcome those barriers. We know how to do that. We handle that for them. Great. They just connect through us. Standing up data infrastructure, you know, is also technical and costs money. Um, and not everyone can do that. You know, you see a lot of large organizations, brands, media companies, et cetera, have their own big tech teams or they're investing in warehousing all this data and harvesting it from, you know, not just social, but web and television and other places. Um, but, you know, not accessible for, you know, a mid-sized person or an individual influencer. And then from there, you have free tools that you get from YouTube and Instagram, et cetera. Uh, but these are often not super performance-based, kind of like a, a gimme that the platforms provide to creators. Some are better than others, but universally, they're not amazing tools. And then there's a fragmentation problem that comes with that. Like, I got to go to Instagram to see this data. I got to go to YouTube to see this data. Go. So it makes managing that data at like kind of a free tier challenging. You know, we sought out to solve all of those problems. Um, once you solve those problems and you have the infrastructure built and you have an interface that, you know, anyone can use that's consumable and user-friendly the actual cost of providing that service is pretty low. Like you have hard cost with storing data. That cost needs to be covered in the subscription. Um, but inherently, like software as a service products, if you've built them right, have pretty low customer support cost and pretty low sales cost and other things. Fortunately, I think we've, we've done it right. At a most modest level, our, our initial pricing is like $15 a month, which is, I think, pretty competitive. It's accessible for like an individual influencer who's trying to grow on social media or a mom and pop shop who's trying to, you know, step up their game for their local marketing. And then it scales all the way up to huge media companies with hundreds of social media accounts or, you know, national political campaigns and such like that. So accessibility, I think, was really important. But I think anybody can take advantage of a, a tool like that in a world where, I can promote my brand or business or grow as a personality for free, but effectively by publishing on social media, um, that can be extremely powerful um, for, you know, even the most modest users. So I, I think anyone can take advantage of it. How do you see the competitive landscape? There's a fair number of tools that absorb data from multiple social media platforms and provide some listening to that and make it searchable or let you post on multiple platforms at the same time. How do you see the competitive landscape? The landscape is extremely competitive in the sense that there are a lot of tools that inherently, okay, we're going to centralize social media data and show it to you. There's a few issues. Like one is you see a lot of tools out there that are like social media in a box. Like I'm going to help you publish. I'm going to help you make content. I'm going to help you 
engage with your audience and respond to comments or DMs. I might help you advertise content uh, and push ads out. And I'm also going to help you with data. Data is sort of the neglected stepchild of that set (laughs) across competitors as I've seen. So, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to super serve data centric users. Um, You know, we, we only do data. I would see us as like complementary to a lot of those tools. There's many that only do creation. There's many that only do syndication. There's many that do all of it and they do all of it with varying degrees of success. So, you know, we're really trying to push beyond, hey, just get all your social media data in a pile and show it in a table or something that's not content centric. Like the solution we built helps you visualize all of your content and then at a glance, see if it's doing well or not. And I think that's really helpful because, you know, like creative professionals, they're not necessarily mathematicians. They don't necessarily navigate data tables well or navigate SQL well. You know, they're focused on how do I make a great piece of content? Um, so that's where I wanted to start. And if, if I look into the future of the things we're building, it's, it's very much centered around content and has a lot of differentiators from what these types of folks do. So, you know, we're focused on providing you know, real-time feedback when something is first published. We're focused on analyzing content and saying, like, what about this piece of content's working? Like, on the R&D side, we're, we're doing some cool stuff with computer vision to help people. If you want to say, like, hey, you know, here, all your content about dogs is doing 10 times better than, you know, all your other content, make more content about dogs. You know, surfacing that in an automated way to a user is something that nobody's doing right now. Or, you know, when you talk about a big media company with hundreds of accounts, just organizing it all. Like how do you automate all of your seasons of a television show and the content you've, you've surrounded or uh, produced around that Um, or all of your content based on like issue based subject matter for a politician or something. So, you know, we're focused on, on that piece as well. Like how do you keep this library organized and how do you determine variations in performance between those groups of, of published posts. So, you know, we're really kind of supercharging that stuff. You know, if you want free analytics, you can go get it at YouTube. Um, if you want okay centralized analytics, you can go get it at Hootsuite. But, you know, if you kind of want the Ferrari and, and also you, you don't want to pay probably as much as some of those other platforms will give you, then, uh, yeah, get the get the cheap Ferrari. <laughs> One of the words you used in that description was the word visualize. And that's kind of a near and dear thing to me as I have a small company that does data visualization, helps people tell stories with data. And long before I had that company, I had an interest in that because I think there really is a power to showing data visually that you often can't have by certainly large amounts of data that you can't find in a table or... Uh, some other ways of presenting it that are less elegant. To what de- degree are you doing that kind of work? What were you alluding to when you said that? Yeah, we do a, a fair bit of that type of work. You know, in the product philosophically, I wanted it to be simple enough that someone who has no understanding of data or statistics to get value out of it, but also powerful enough that someone who does have a good understanding of those things can get a lot of value out of it too. At a basic level, we wanted to distill it down to good or bad. Um, So literally, if you're browsing a list of posts, we'll highlight them in green if they're doing good, red if they're doing bad. So it's like, you know, that is 
a really quick scannable way to understand if something's doing and is that well. is that relative to that entity's other posts that would be the only way to do it right you can't compare small creator to disney or something exactly um in fact there are several tools that try and do just that and i philosophically i, I think that's the wrong approach you have a lot of companies that are you know more focused on social listening and trying to measure the whole internet um like a a tubular labs or, or um, crowd tangle or others, you know, they tend to, if they are benchmarking performance, say like try and verticalize it. Like this is what it means to be successful in beauty or fitness or sports or whatever. And to me, that's, that's a really generic way of looking at things. And, and, you know, within those verticals, there's so much diversity. Like, is it, if it's sports, is it basketball? Is it football? Is it, you know, uh, rugby in New Zealand. There's a really a wide range of like the types of people who engage with that content and what that content is. What I found successful um, when I was advising YouTube channels and media companies on how to grow on social media was like, how do you do a little bit better than last time? Um, and philosophically, that was kind of the tack I wanted to take with with how we present benchmarking. So it, it's exactly as you described. It's looking back at all of their own data historically and saying, you know, okay, where are deviations in performance? If we're going back to high school statistics, is is this metric performing at least one standard deviation above or below normal? Um, and if it's normal, I don't care about it. I'm not going to highlight it. But if it's special and it's, you know, it's performing at least one deviation better or worse, then I'm going to highlight that. And then I'm going to size that and say like, okay, well, how much better or worse is something doing? When you dig into the details, we've derived, you know, these benchmarks for every single metric that's in there, whether it's a video view or a revenue rate or whatever it is. And you can then drill in and see that on a chart and see like, okay, here's normal. Here's the normal range. Here's where I'm at. And then I can see, you know, hey, this is 20x higher than normal. So, you know, that's presented in a way that's, it just automates that analysis piece of it. I found when we were researching this product, many, many different companies were taking different approaches to how they were doing this internally. And, and none of them were very sophisticated. They were all done by hand in spreadsheets and things like that. We're deriving those normals and then we're recalculating them you know, on a rolling basis so that you know, what it means to perform well is changing over time constantly. You know, your, your account might grow, YouTube might you know, or uh, let's say Facebook like deprioritizes live video overnight and suddenly is emphasizing uh, a different type of post type, like a story or something like that in the feed. And it's like, well, you know, what it meant to be successful on a live video when it was rocking and rolling in the algorithm is way different than it is now, now that it's deprioritized. So, you know, we want to take those types of shifts in account. And when you have, you know, a rolling uh, benchmark for performance that automatically does that in an elegant way that's that's also really simple that people can wrap their head around. Um, I think the, the last thing I see the competitive set do is a lot of people want to have like a secret sauce. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to be transparent about what these numbers are and where they came from so that they actually have meaning to people. Do many politicians have this kind of sophistication behind them or in how they operate online? You know what? Politics is really a new vertical for me. I came out of media and, and brands and stuff like that. Um, 
getting to work with a national political campaign as, as my first political customer was just like, just a crazy experience. How, and, how did that come to you? Uh, it's really kind of a luck meets opportunity meets preparation type of situation. Um, my first hire or one of my first hires at Maker Studios um, was a, a woman named Sarah Galvez coming into college. And um, I kept close ties with her since, um, you know, we moved beyond Maker Studios and such. She she actually left Maker to be a, a digital coordinator on the Clinton campaign and then worked at uh, a few other media companies and um, uh, Acronym, which is a, one of the big super PACs on, on the left. And then from there, she was got the uh, job of the digital director for the the Biden campaign. It was really interesting, you know. The the products that we had built was kind of starting ma- to mature, like we're starting to you know release it publicly and acquire customers. Um, at that point, they were having some trouble with a competing piece of software and needed a solution that they could stand up really quickly. Through working with them, understood or learned basically what made our product appealing to a a political campaign. Like it's effectively instant infrastructure. Like you can set it up in five minutes. You can train your team on it in 10 minutes. Um, And that's really valuable for like what a temporary organization or especially an organization like a a national campaign that just has to run really fast. Like everything's happening fast. You don't have time to, you know, really dilly dally with, you know, configuration and things like that. You know, meant much of the political landscape, you know, for people who are providing tools in the political space, provide things that align with that type of usage, whether it's, you know, a texting platform or a CRM or fundraising platform or whatever it is. Um, they tend to be like quick to spin up, easy to use. Um, and that's what makes them appealing. That's how we got in. I think that's how we were successful. I think going forward is, is we look into the political segment for our business, those things, but also it's, it's approachability. Like, you know, if you are a, a down ballot race in, if you're running for county commissioner somewhere in rural Idaho, like you can probably afford $15 to see how your, your social content's performing. And, you know, beyond just shaking hands, publishing on your Facebook page or your Twitter's might be one of the only ways you're getting promoted, period. Um, so I think it's really accessible for that reason. And I, I think that's definitely powerful as we look to penetrate that market a bit more. I'm curious about your transition into entrepreneurship. So you you had been working, as you had described earlier, in a series of jobs where you were kind of doing the work. And there's a point, I think a little over five years ago, where you decide to start Paladin. What occasioned that change and talk a little bit about the founding there? Sure. Um, yeah, that was that was the first venture into entrepreneurship for me. Um, you know, my my co-founder, our CEO at Paladin, um, is a, is a close personal friend of mine. He he actually hired me in my first job in Los Angeles, uh, probably about ten years ago. What's his name? His name's James Creech. He and I had, you know, kept close personal ties and I went to work at a, at a multi-channel network. He went to work at a multi-channel network. And, and really we observed this core issue with our industry that all of those 
companies um, managing creator networks were building the same types of tools and investing millions of dollars to do it. Um, we thought, you know, that was really primed for disruption. Like, you know, we could also provide those tools and then those people could invest in other types of technology that would help creators. And in these types of things were like onboarding creators to the network, sending them contracts, calculating royalty payments, just general nuts and bolts back office stuff. But there was no toolkit that worked for that. So filling that need was really the inception of the business. Um, we had a third co-founder, um, Ole Amundsen, um, who's a, a technology entrepreneur out in Norway. We, we bought out the IP for kind of like an early stage version of this software um, from the company James was at. You know, from there, sanded down all the rough edges, got a lot of market feedback, built a lot more stuff. And it really evolved into a, a full influencer marketing suite for, you know, how do you find social media influencers you want to work with? How do you manage your relationship with them? Um, like, you know, store their data, send them messages, send them contracts, send them payments, and then aggregating stuff they're publishing on behalf of a brand or service um, into campaign reporting for uh, for agencies. So that's kind of the short version on, on how that started and where it went. And how did you decide to do the second company, the one we were mostly been talking about, Measure Studio? How did, I mean, you're, I assume, quite busy with the first company. What's the inception there of, uh, of spinning something else out? Yeah, I mean, or... Paladin went through a big product transition over the five years it's been around. You know, it started serving these really YouTube multi-channel networks, which is a specific type of customer that, that really doesn't exist anymore. Like all the big MCNs got acquired and dismantled and YouTube changed policies and made that business model less viable. And, um, you know, we had to really pivot over to something that was in our space with those companies as they were pivoting and they, they largely pivoted into influencer marketing agencies. Um, so, you know, we had a big architectural product shift, um, to doing that. And that was, you know, not always the smoothest process. I think we have a really, really great product. Now we have some really great momentum as a business, but probably at like a lower point of that, you know, started thinking like, okay, well, we're still investing in this. We're still trying to transition to influencer marketing and serve that market better than anyone else. But, you know, barring that, what are we good at? And what could we do with that? The things that we were doing really well were the social media data piece. You know, we're, we had really good campaign reporting. Um, that was really the thing that made us competitive compared to other people who are maybe more sophisticated with discovery or more sophisticated with CRM. And I was like, okay, well, what if we just did that? What would that look like? That really came out of a lot of conversations with people in our network that we didn't necessarily have a product for. Um, you know, James and I coming from influencer networks, basically, it's like the world's greatest marketing or uh, networking opportunity is when Disney bought Maker and uh, shut it down because all these people scattered and they, they went to all these different, you know, new media companies that were trying to solve data problems with with content. And they're all saying, hey, you know, the, the tools here are not very good. Um, when we talk to them, we say like, hey, you know, what are the types of things you're struggling with? Um, so it was like, oh, okay, this could be an opportunity. We're really good at this. There's a, a market need for a better way to do this. 
let's just make like a little skunk works R and D thing. And the idea was, you know, could we make an MVP something that is quick to build and, and would add value. And, you know, if, if we use it to inform better stuff on our, our core business, great. Like, you know, things like benchmarking are really valuable for an influencer marketing campaign or, you know, things like quick reaction, um, like data infrastructure where you you know you're tracking things hourly and, and surfacing insights are, are really valuable for influencer marketing. So we saw them as, you know, there's the Venn diagram has a lot of overlap on those two things. So it's like, okay, we can take a risk without it being necessarily a sunk cost and try and like spread our wings and get something as a larger addressable market. You know, our influencer marketing is, you know, it's it's brands and agencies, but social media data is basically everyone like you know it's it's smbs it's sports it's political campaigns it's direct to consumer it's it's media companies it's all those things so you know we saw like a pretty high ceiling in an opportunity like that too and i you know all those things really drove the inception of that product so how big is measure studio right now as a company is it totally separate from paladin is it separate structure? Does it use the same staff? It's still one company. The Paladin as a whole is about 25 people, mostly engineering. We, you know, we have a, a business team that's, I think, six or seven people now. And the, the people focused on Measure Studio are, you know, they're dedicated to it. Um, the exception of me, I'm just largely, you know, my time is, is split right now. There's like two data engineers, there's two app site engineers, there's a designer and, and me. Um, so it's a pretty small team, but there's really great advantages to small teams when you're building software, especially software that has like a really narrow focus area like this. Um, you can move really fast and you can you can iterate very, very quickly. And that's been very beneficial, the development of it. I think we're like really pulling ahead in terms of feature differentiation between competitors. Like it's it's really no contest if you go head to head on data functionality with with most people. And a year from now it's going to be way no contest. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. What's your secret to putting together a team that does well in building software for a niche? I don't know if it's a secret necessarily, but you know there's there's definitely a lot of best practices when you're when you're building technology. You know, having a clear vision of what you're trying to do, like having a North Star is very important. I think that was a huge learning takeaway from doing Paladin where when you're when you're doing enterprise software and you're struggling for your first revenue, you kind of have to take whatever you can get. And often, you know, those types of customers have a lot of custom needs and you got to try and figure out how to fit the square peg in the round hole. And that's really challenging because it results in a lot of product bloat and a lot of technical debt and a lot of difficulty just keeping the wheels on the bus. Um, with Measure, you know, coming into it, I knew kind of exactly what I wanted to deliver. It's like, I want to super serve data. I want to democratize it and make it accessible for people. And if I ever have a question like, oh, should I build this? Or, oh, this, this customer says, oh, it's great, but I wish I could publish posts with it. It's like, nope, that's not my North Star. I don't need to deal with that. And I'm in a convenient position because, you know, we have the rest of the business to support, you know, revenue and, and everything else. So, you know, measures growing quickly, but, you know, 
when you have stability as an organization, it allows you to be a little bit more firm with the choices that, that you make and the direction you want to go. Um, beyond that, it's make sure you have a great team that, you know, you want to work with. You know, we have a great team of like good technologists who are, you know, have a good rapport with. I think a lot of product managers that I've observed are not amazing at listening or not amazing at digging into details or not amazing at communicating. Like communicating is really, really important. Like you have to be clear with what you're trying to do, how it's supposed to work, have a good design, make sure that design is clear to engineering, contextualize everything, what we're building, this is what the customer asked for, this is why they're asking for it, this is the impact it's going to have on the business. And and people don't take the time to do that and you know talk to their team to contextualize things so that they can make better decisions when the answer isn't so clear. So I think those things have, have been successful for us. Your company came to my attention uh, when you were listed in the new cohort with the Higher Ground Labs. How did you learn about them and become that? And what has it meant to you? You know, they learned about us as a result of of working with the Biden campaign. I think um, they, I believe, had had connections with um, you know, the digital team there. And in in retrospect of the campaign, just want to be like, hey, you know, what technology do people use? How successful was it? You know, is this thing that people are using working or not working? If it's not working, can it be disrupted? Are there new people who who you utilized? And I, I think we fell into that last category. You know, we got reached out to by uh, Shomik, uh, the principal over there, um, great guy. Um, got to know him. Got to know a little bit more about you know their mission. I think working with the Biden campaign was was really exciting for me personally and our team because. A lot of what we do is not mission oriented at all. It's it's influencer marketing, which is inherently kind of vapid. And you know, when you you, you start getting older and reflecting on like, well, what am I actually doing in the world here other than making money? There's not a lot left over with that. So like, you know, trying to do something to impact an election that I, I felt personally passionate about was was really like it put a lot of juice in my engine. And you know, HDL being mission oriented, you know, having a slant for the types of political campaigns that they serve and, and issues that they're surrounding themselves with and nonprofit and, and stuff like that. It appealed to me in a really big way. Um, it appealed to my, my business partner, James, in a really big way. They seem like good humans. <laughs> if you, if you, I've talked to a few VCs in my day and many of them do not seem like good humans. <laughs> You know, it was kind of a no-brainer. They invited us to participate, and it was a very enthusiastic yes. The political market for technology has been a difficult market to get into historically. I think it's rationalizing a bit over the last few years. To what extent are they part of your sales strategy, and how are you trying to make sure that people use this that could be helped? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's very early in our working relationship. You know, the the cohort just got announced I think you know, 2 weeks ago. We're just kind of ramping up like monthly syncs and and things like that. I think they're going to be essential for us to break into the political market in a deeper way. Like we've had some success getting um we've got a, a an Australian political 
party involved. Uh, the city of Orlando is using Measure Studio. So, we, you know, we've got, got a couple more political wins under our belt, like different levels. Um, and international is really exciting to be part of, too, and having more conversations there. But HGLs, you know, they're very well placed in, in that sphere. They can make a lot of introductions to potential users, to adjacent technologies in the space that we could be packaged with. Um, help us build a better product that's aligned with that type of user and understanding their needs. Um, so I'm really excited um, to be working with them. But like you said, the political market is difficult for technology. Like campaigns, they have inherent churn for a, for a software business because they're short term. They're cyclical. So, you know, you can't rely on that revenue all the time. There's a softer side of things with the super PACs and whatnot using things, but they also are, are somewhat cyclical in, in their usage and, and what they're trying to do. They kind of like, you know, make big pushes and then they, they dial it back and, and reconsider strategies and then they make big pushes and the, the pendulum keeps swinging. So one thing I think that makes us appealing is, you know, we're not wholly dependent on that as a business. Like, you know, we, we currently are pretty successful at penetrating the media, penetrating influencers and agencies um, as a business in, into those markets. And having options other than politics, I think, is is helpful for our business. I think there's other types of political technology where I could see that being harder. How are you dealing with the partisanship question? Some vendors uh, only will work with one party, others uh, don't. Where are you? As part of working with HGL, we have to make a pledge to, you know, align with their philosophy around, you know, what party to work with and an issue set, which, you know, aligns strongly progressive. Personally, that's that's where my political leanings sit. So it's for me, it's not a hard decision to make. I, I think I'd have personally like pretty big ethical concerns working with certain types of media outlets, certain types of political candidates. I don't want to demonize everyone. I think, you know, I'm a big believer in in dialogue and working together and, and that type of thing. I'm not necessarily a, a wing nut, but I feel like there's like a a clear moral victor in in the political landscape right now as a human. That's where we're we're sitting as a business and that that makes me sleep at night certainly. Do you have any sort of sense of where politics and social media are going? Like if you have to look out on the horizon, are there any things that you think are predictable? I feel we've, we've reached an extreme of reactionary content generation. The things that do well politically seem to be candidates trying to dunk on each other or publicly shame people, a lot of finger wagging. I think the tolerance for that is reaching an end as, as like a society. At least that's, that's how I feel anecdotally and how a lot of people that I speak with feel. I don't think it's productive. I think, you know, as, as a culture on both sides of the aisle, we're extremely frustrated by like issues not moving forward and or solutions to those issues not moving forward. Politics as theater is, is a huge thing on social media right now. I think there will be a reaction to that eventually, and the pendulum will swing the other way. I think the Biden campaign was really excellent at showing how stability and clarity and 
a message based around cooperation, even if it's not received well by the other side, has a significant audience. And qualitative consumption will be a big part of measuring the success of that. When people understand by the numbers, the things that drive positive sentiment and drive votes are not necessarily the things that drive success on social media from like a raw consumption basis. Just because you got 10 million impressions doesn't mean you got 10 million votes. You have to look at you know other types of things in that data to understand what makes your message resonate. You know, did someone watch all the way through a 20-minute speech like that? That's pretty compelling. Like you got somebody's attention there. You probably got their brain churning a little bit. But I don't think people are really looking at that type of data very much. And I think if they do, and I think if they realize that, you know, the finger wagging isn't the type of stuff that generates that type of consumption, that the types of content people make will change. Um, But it could be a while. And a lot of it is so dependent on what the platforms themselves do to distribute content, which I also think is, it's changing. You know, there's more heavy handed moderation there's certain issue-based things that are getting promoted or demoted. And I think that will also kind of force people to play within the boundaries of, of the field. There's a whole other can of worms on whether the, the social media companies are going to do that appropriately, I think. And that's, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of trust in Mark Zuckerberg to decide what it's okay to talk about. And that's also concerning in a certain respect. So there's there's a level of unpredictability there too. But that's where I think things are going. Well, I hope that that rather optimistic viewpoint prevails. I'll tell you that because it feels like maybe a a mess getting worse on on some dimensions, but we'll see. It could get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Might get worse before it gets better. Is is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? You know, not off the top of my head. So I thought it was a really great interview. You're an excellent guest, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? Um, yeah, if if you're still listening, um, give us, uh, and you're interested in exploring your social media data, understanding what's working, what's not working, give us a try. Um, just go to measure.studio in your browser. You can try it for free for 14 days. Uh, Pricing is pretty accessible, and... Um, you have any questions just hit me up in the support chat and you will go directly to my inbox and i will talk to you we can be friends (laughs) (laughs) very cool that was thomas kramer thomas is at measure.studio this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.